be thinking as we wrap up this uh, We Have Issues 2020 series with, with the issue of abortion. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Can't we just have fun um, and, and just, you know, be lighthearted for once? And, and this series is kind of heavy, and certainly ending with an issue like abortion is, is probably the heaviest way to end it. And as I was thinking about that, it, uh, it occurred to me, and I mean, I see where those folks are coming from, and next week we're starting a new series called Declutter, and we're talking about getting rid of self-doubt next week, so a much different feel. But as I was thinking about folks who might have that concern, it occurred to me that today's the Super Bowl. Does it seem to you like everything in America is becoming more political? That... that Whatever is happening in our country, it is beginning to take over more and more of our lives. Does that make sense at all? Is football political now? It is, isn't it? What, what do you do during the national anthem has become a big political issue that has been used now in, in elections. Now, uh, at least the past few years, I, I don't know how long it's been happening, to be honest, but the President of the United States gives an interview during the halftime show. And it just seems like even something like the Super Bowl, where it's, you know, guys running around with a ball, is political now in our country. And if you've caught anything through this series, you've probably observed the pattern in that every issue we talk about, there is the common thread that it seems like less and less the will of the American people is being put into law in our country. And there are other forces that are influencing the laws in our country besides the democratic will of the American people. It seems like that's been happening for several years, dark money in politics, gerrymandering, two different biased medias. We don't even watch the same media anymore. We, don't, we can't agree on what the same truth is, what the same facts are. And the events of this week... As well, does it feel like to you over time our democracy has been eroding? Even on the Super Bowl day, it just feels like that. And we're reminded of that. So I guess it's kind of appropriate that we talk about this issue on a day like today because this issue, perhaps more than any other, as, as uh, perplexing as it may be to some, seems to drive U.S. politics. This issue can determine elections. Anecdotally, I have a lot of evangelical Christian friends who were not thrilled about the current president during the last election. Many were, but a lot of my friends really, they didn't say that. But when I just asked them, well, who do you plan to vote for? They plan to vote for the current president. Okay, why? Because of the issue we're talking about today. They could not vote for anybody else who... Uh, didn't want to make Roe v. Wade illegal. That was their criteria. They're single-issue voters. They vote on the issue of abortion, and that's really it. And the end goal is, who's going, to, who's going to overturn Roe v. Wade? Is there some way that we can make abortion illegal in the United States? And they will overlook lots of other issues and vote on, on the issue of abortion. And so for millions and millions of Americans, this really is the only issue. And what we're experiencing in our country right now is a part of that. And so it's perhaps the most important issue 
that we could talk about in this series. Now, I want to give a few disclaimers before we start, and I'm going to run through a lot of facts today. I'm going to break it up with some stories, but I'm going to go kind of fast today. I want to give some disclaimers first. First of all, I'm a man talking about abortion. If, if that, if that uh, didn't escape you, then I want to go ahead and acknowledge that. So I am a white Christian male pastor talking about abortion. And I just want you to know that I know that. And, and then you, you, can, you can use whatever filter you want to use as we go throughout the sermon today. I appreciate those, those applause. I see that hand, sister. And so, secondly, abortion is an incredibly emotional topic. How could it not be? Sometime during the message today, I'm going to say something that is going to... It's going to strike you, and you're going to have an emotional reaction to that. I really don't mean to. Usually in sermons, you do kind of want to ratchet up emotion to engage people. I don't have to do that today. Everybody's already engaged. The emotion's already there. So I'm going to be as sensitive as possible, and it's an incredibly emotional topic, and that's normal, and that's okay, and how could it not be? So I just want to say that. For many, and this is super important, for many, this is not just a political issue. This is a personal issue. So I also want you to know that I know that in every congregation in America, there are wonderful women who are pillars of their church community. They're great women, they may be great moms, and, and they've had an abortion. And I just want you to know that I know that your experience is valid, and you're welcome here, and I say welcome home. And I want to uh, approach this topic in a way that, that um, is sensitive to you as well. Uh, I'm going to do my best to be fair to both views as we have in every message in this series, as much as possible. We're going to present the pro-life view and the pro-choice view. My goal is that no matter how you feel about the issue, you're going to feel like you were fairly heard and your views are represented. And then last disclaimer, let's just be honest. The Christian church has always had a difficult time with any issue involving sex and reproduction. Can I get an amen on that? If, If you were going to give the Christian church a grade on how it has dealt with issues of sex, sexuality, and reproduction over the centuries, what grade would you give it? Some of you are like, is there a grade lower than an F? Could I get a G, Pat? Or maybe an H? Or it just seems like the church has always had a difficult time with any issue involving sex and reproduction, and this is probably no different. So first of all, some basic statistics on abortion, and then we're going to move on to the pro-choice view and the pro-life view. So first of all, The abortion rate is the lowest it's ever been in the United States. Since Roe v. Wade was passed, the abortion rate peaked in 1990, and it's been, or actually 1980, and it's been dropping ever since. And now, of course, there are different groups who want to take credit for that, and and it's, and it's, it's tough to determine exactly why. There are many reasons, probably, most likely, is the increased use of contraceptives. And so the abortion rate is the lowest it's ever been in the United States. I think that's a, an important place to start. Secondly, public opinion is mixed in the United States. Every year, Gallup and Pew Research and others poll Americans. And, and public opinion has been mixed since Roe v. Wade and before that, and it's been mixed ever since. It can creep you know, certain, you know, a, a few percentage points in, in, in different directions year by year, but public opinion is mixed. Roe v. Wade became law 47 years ago on January 22nd, 1973, just a little over 47 years ago, when the Supreme Court uh, ruled um, on Roe v. Wade. And there is a major correlation between religious faith and views on abortions. White evangelicals and conservative Catholics are the most opposed to abortion, uh, to abortion 
uh, in, in the country. Uh, third, abortion laws vary around the world. I think it's important to know where the rest of the countries in the world stand on all the issues that we've been talking about. I have a map here. You're going to see on the screen the countries in red prohibit abortion. Countries in orange permit abortion only to save a woman's life. Yellow to preserve the mother's health. Turquoise, I'll say, turquoise countries permit abortion on broad socioeconomic grounds. Blue countries essentially on request. And the blue countries include the United States, Canada, most of Europe, Australia, South Africa, China, and Russia. And so you can just see by uh, the countries of the world how we vary on our abortion laws. I think it's important to see where we stand in the world in all of these issues. And then statistics may be surprising. So uh, basic statistics about Abortion, 90% of abortions in the United States are performed during the first trimester. 66% are, are performed at eight weeks or less of gestation. 1.3% of abortions are performed in the third trimester, usually for medical reasons. 60% of the women who obtain an abortion already have at least one child. 39% of abortions are medication abortions, not surgical abortions. And the current U.S. abortion rate is 12 abortions for every 1,000 women. That was in 2016. And it was 30 abortions per 1,000 women in 1980. So the rate of abortion is less than half what it was at its peak in 1980. In Arizona, just factoid here, in Arizona in 2012... Uh, a law was passed making abortion illegal after 20 weeks, except for medical emergencies that was blocked by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And then Roe v. Wade took over at that point as a federal law. And, uh, and so uh, abortion in Arizona is governed by Roe v. Wade. In uh, er sorry, in Arizona, a woman seeking an abortion must also receive counseling and an ultrasound at the facility. She must be offered the chance to view the ultrasound and then wait at least 24 hours before returning to the facility for an abortion. So first, let's look at the pro-choice view. And we want to be fair to both sides. I'm going to use the common names that both sides typically re refer to themselves by, so pro-choice and, and pro-life. And so first of all, if you ask a pro-choice person, why do you have a pro-choice view on abortion? This is what they might say, and of course, these lists are not exhaustive. I'm doing my best to, to, to cover uh, the basics. A pro-choice person uh, would cite women's rights. And they would point out that in the history of the world, a woman's plight in life up until the modern era has always been determined by her ability to bear children. So before modern contraception, any woman could expect to have at least 10 children. You may have you know, great grandmas or in, in your past that you know about who had 10, 12 or more uh, children. And so if that's the case and, and you're having at least 10 children during your marriage, there isn't really any opportunity for the woman to do anything else. Certainly not outside the home. Her plight in life was determined by her ability to have children. So she would be the primary caretaker. There's no time to do anything else. And so folks who are pro-choice would say that abortion is the last stop in women's rights that give a woman power over her reproductive ability and give her a final say about what her life can be like. And so 
Margaret Sanger, uh, pro-choice leader, said, no woman can call herself free who does not control her own body. So a pro-choice person believes that it's within the rights of women to terminate a pregnancy um, within her body. uh, Certainly they would cite women's health as a reason uh, for supporting legal abortion. Abortion did not begin with Roe v. Wade. Abortions have always taken place throughout world history and, of course, throughout U.S. history. And they were taking place illegally in every state in the country before uh, they were legal. And they were performed by untrained people who posed a greater risk, risk to women's health and, um, than today. So there's still a risk to having an abortion today, but it's far safer than the back alley abortion uh, when abortions are illegal. And so they would point to women's health as a reason uh, to, have, uh, to keep abortion legal. Thirdly, they would point to economic reasons for holding the pro-choice position. Uh, pro-choice persons argue that if the United States had a more robust financial security net, that abortions would be reduced and there wouldn't be such a need for abortions. If, if new mothers had access to higher wage jobs and better access to affordable food and diapers and childcare and family and medical leave, then there would be less abortions. The Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice research organization, has found that 75% of abortions are for low-income women. That's something we're going to come back to. 75% of the women who obtain an abortion cite economic reasons behind their choice. The U.S. Department of Labor found that only 15% of U.S. private sector workers have access to paid family leave through their employer. In 27, uh, that's a, as of 2017. Various groups report that approximately 25% of women in the United States go back to work within two weeks of having a baby. A woman's body has not healed yet from childbirth in two weeks. 25% mostly because they can't afford to be out of work any longer or they're afraid they'll lose their job. The United States is the only industrialized nation in the world that does not have guaranteed paid family leave. Uh, Fortune reported in October 2018 that child care costs more than college tuition in 28 states. I say amen to that. Hannah and I have a four-year-old. We pay $800 a month for his child care. And I say we can afford that, like nobody can really afford that. We can actually pay that, but lots of families can't really afford that. Um, Fourth, they would say that we should distinguish between the rights of a fetus and the rights of the mother. Some would say an unborn child. The terminology can differ, but a person who is pro-choice might say we should distinguish between the rights of the fetus and the rights of the mother. Persons who are pro-choice argue that a fetus, an unborn child, does not have the same rights as the mother. Interestingly enough, if a pro-choice person wanted to cite faith as a reason behind their issue, they might quote Exodus chapter 21 in the Hebrew Bible. Um, after the Israelites come out of Egypt, Moses gives them the law, and, and, and they... Uh, uh, they have the law as a way to govern themselves and, and, and have a community in which order is preserved and they want to act in such a way that preserves the welfare of society. And, and Exodus 21 says, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined 
what the woman's husband demands. Now notice it's the husband who's calling the shots here. It's a patriarchal culture. Paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, we assume harm to the mother, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So in other words, if the unborn or the fetus is miscarried, there's a fine. If you harm the mother on top of that, now lex talionis takes into effect and it's eye for an eye. If the unborn is harmed, it's a fine. If the mother is killed, the penalty is execution. So they would say there, there are two different levels here of, of justice depending on between the fetus and the mother. And then lastly, a pro-choice person might point to the shame that is attached to unplanned pregnancy, often by those who oppose legal abortion. They would point to the fact that there is a religious correlation to religious views, uh, to views on abortion, sorry. There is a religious correlation to views on abortion. And that families who oppose abortion might also tend to have a hard time dealing with unplanned pregnancy in their families. So uh, Hannah and I were raised by conservative Christian families, and we were taught to abstain uh, from sex before marriage. And um, Hannah and I started dating in our early 20s, and we both shared beliefs and, and had, had those voices in our heads from our past, our parents and our our church communities and, and our, the Christian college we went to, and, and uh, we had intentions to follow that guidance uh, while we were dating. And then eventually, there were other feelings that started to creep in. And, and we fell short of that goal as an unmarried couple. Now, keep in mind, I was a pastor. I was employed as a pastor. And we did not have contraception because we didn't plan on doing that. And that's how, you know, good little Christian boys are raised. Not to, you know, buying contraceptives would be like, well, you plan on having sex then. So we did not have that and we were not prepared and we were scared. And, and we talked about it. We said, what if, you know, there was a little bit of a scare there. And, and now I, we never really seriously considered having an abortion if, if Hannah was pregnant. But she admitted to me, and I tell this with her permission, that it crossed her mind. And she said the reason that it crossed her mind is because she knew what would happen to us if that were to be the case. And the truth is, we would have felt crushing shame. I would have lost my job. And maybe rightly so, there are expectations but that's what would have happened. And everybody we know, our immediate family, our friends, everybody who's ever heard our names would think, oh, that's that couple. And there, there would have been a crushing amount of shame heaped on us. We didn't have to go through that. Uh, the, the pregnancy test was negative and, and uh, we got married. And two years after we were married, we had our awesome little boy and, and another one after that. So we didn't have to face that decision ultimately, but 
it enabled us to at least empathize with a young person who was raised in that environment. And I think a pro-choice person would say there, there are millions of those young people who are taught to abstain only, but they, they're never taught about contraceptives and they would feel guilty about purchasing contraceptives just in case. And so they can often face shame if uh, nature takes its course. And so I've, I've tried to just briefly summarize a pro-choice view. It's not complete. It's not, you know, it's certainly not exhaustive and there would be other reasons, but I've done my best to summarize why a person might be pro-choice. And let's move on to the pro-life view. A person who is pro-life probably would start by saying they believe life begins at conception. And there is a bit of a debate in the medical community about what conception is or when conception is. Some would say when the egg is fertilized. Some would say when the egg implants into the uterus a few days later. But uh, a person who is pro-life likely believes that performing an abortion is ending a human life. And so you can see why the stakes are ratcheted up very high for someone who holds a pro-life view. They would say that an unwanted unborn child is a fetus and a wanted unborn child is a baby. And so the local TV news here in Phoenix carried a story in 2015. And this is a heavy story about a botched abortion in Phoenix. And this illustrates, I think, what pro-life persons are saying here. The mother was a 27-year-old woman. The fetus was 21 weeks old, which is close to viability outside the womb. And the mother had received a medication meant to abort the pregnancy. The nurse at the abortion clinic, uh, however, called 911 because she said uh, on the call, we are a termination clinic. There was a termination that was performed. Recorded, and this call was recorded on February 26, 2015. There is a fetus that is breathing right now. So we need someone to do services. Uh, the fetus is breathing, so we need to care for it now, she continued. And the emergency dispatcher asked if the newborn had been subjected to a partial abortion. And the abortionist said that the child had not been harmed in that way. However, the child needed medical care at once. We can't provide that care except for oxygen, she said. And we're trying to keep the fetus stable until someone arrives. That's a heavy story. But it illustrates, I think, what a, where a pro-life person is coming from. And, and uh, the Arizona legislature moved to try to pass a law um, limiting abortion to 20 weeks after that happened. It was, and it was um, struck down again by the courts. But it illustrates a pro-life position. Before exiting the birth canal or before being lifted from the mother's womb in a cesarean, um, this is a fetus, but now out by, after traveling a few inches, uh, this is an unborn baby who is, or a baby who is now uh, in need of medical care. And so um, one of the reasons a person would cite for being pro-life. Um, number two, they would consider fetal viability. So those who hold a softer pro-life view might reference fetal viability. So uh, pro-life legislation is often introduced to limit abortion to terms less than fetal viability. So there's been a move in some states to limit it to 20 weeks, some to six weeks, which is far below fetal viability. But um, the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision set fetal li uh, viability at 28 weeks. It was later revised to 24 weeks with advances in medical care in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood ruling um, uh, two decades later. Third, a person who's pro-choice, or pro-life, rather, uh, might point out that there seems to be an arbitrary difference between the rights of a fetus and the rights of an unborn child. 
connected to what we were saying earlier. They would say that the rights of a fetus or an unborn child seem to depend on whether the mother wants it or not. And so if a pregnant woman is assaulted and, and her unborn child is killed, and then that's an unborn baby, and the attacker is charged with murder. If the mother has an abortion, it's a fetus, and its life is ended with no penalty. And pro-life folks would just say that it seems to be an arbitrary determiner of the rights of the fetus or the unborn. And then, as we mentioned before, there is a high correlation between religious views and views on abortion. According to Pew Research in June 2016, 75% of white evangelicals believe abortion is morally wrong. 53% of white Catholics say abortion is morally wrong, while the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church opposes abortion in all circumstances, as well as, as contraception. Um, 25% of religiously unaffiliated people say abortion is morally wrong. Most Christian denominations, even progressive Christian denominations, oppose abortion used in the same way that a contraceptive would be used. And so there's a high correlation between religious views and views on abortion. Scripture is often quoted by folks who are pro-life. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. The psalmist writes, for you created my inmost being. So a prayer to God. God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Depths of the earth, that's interesting. It's interesting phraseology, but your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Another verse often quoted is Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So as people who want to interpret the Bible in the light of its historical context, we have questions about some of those things. Are our days preordained? Is that predetermination? Before I was formed in the depths of the earth, that, is that language that's interesting for us to deal with? But the idea here is that God sees us before we're born. And so pro-life folks will often quote those verses. And then fifthly, a person who is pro-life might cite the experiences of women regarding abortion. Now there are women who have had an abortion and it's not something that they regret. It's not something that, that they feel guilty about. There are women uh, who would be pointed out by the pro-life movement who do feel that. Or maybe women who chose not to have an abortion and they, and they would express why they chose not to have one. So, you know, when I'm not here we show videos uh, for the sermon uh, given by a pastor named Adam Hamilton in Kansas City who was on cloud nine today because he's been a Chiefs fan and it's been 50 years since they've been in the Super Bowl and, and, and he pastors the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City. It's a, it's a huge church. He started it in 1990 in a funeral home chapel. It's the only place they had to meet. They had 90 people there in a funeral home chapel. Now it's something like 30 some thousand members. I think this this past Christmas Eve and all the Christmas Eve services, they had almost 40,000 people that came through the doors. The, the buildings are huge. People in Kansas City call it Six Flags Over Jesus. So it's just this massive church. He's been, he's been incredibly influential. And he wrote a book several years ago called Confronting the Controversies, where he dealt with difficult political issues, and one of those was abortion. And, and he included an email written to him by a mother in his congregation who chose not to have an abortion. And she wrote this email to him. 
And she wrote that when she was 17 and her boyfriend was 16, they went to a party. And as the night went on, couples part, uh, you know, paired off and went to different rooms in the house, and she became pregnant. And when her father found out, he was furious. And since this happened before Roe v. Wade, he, sent, he set up an appointment with a doctor in Switzerland and was preparing to buy her a ticket uh, to fly over, but she refused. And he told her he would never welcome her back into his home if she had the baby. She moved in with her 16-year-old boyfriend's family, and they moved to Arizona, incidentally, uh, where um, uh, she gave birth to this baby to spare the family the embarrassment of this, uh, this child in their eyes. And they struggled to make ends meet. They divorced after 12 years of marriage. She never went to college. She was a single mother. And she wrote this email to Adam. Yes, my life changed dramatically, she said. But to this day, that child has been the greatest blessing to me and thousands of others. God prompts him to call his mom when she needs to talk but doesn't want to bother him. I'm so proud of the husband and father that he has become. So many times when I look at him, I think that this person could have ended up aborted. I knew uh, that this baby was a gift from God, and I look back sometimes at the college that I missed, and my life is different than it could have been, but I wouldn't change it for anything. And then the woman writes in this email, thank you, Adam, for being my gift from God. I never dreamed 36 years ago while I was carrying you that you would have the impact on God's people and me that you do. You are my pastor, my confidant, my best friend. I love you, mom. And Adam's mom wrote that email to him. And so he calls himself pro-life with a heavy heart. And his view, he says he understands the plight of women and, and why a person would be pro-choice. He, and he'll cite this story you know, to um, when he talks about his, his, uh, his views. If you've never heard my story, some of you here have, I, I was born out of wedlock. And uh, it was a time when, as you know, I mean, society changes, but there was some difficulty for my mom. And uh, it was in a traditional part of the country. And, uh, and she raised me as a 21-year-old. Um, you know, when I was born, she raised me, and, and uh, we lived with my grandparents until I was six, and she married my stepdad. But um, my mom chose to give birth to me. And so folks who are, who are pro-life would cite, I think, probably more reasons than this as well, but this is just an attempt, at least, at describing where a pro-life person may be coming from. So every week we've looked at what is the will of the American people. We live in an incredibly divided time. And what is the will of the American people? And I really did try to be fair to both of these views. And so I hope you feel that way. Um, but when we look at polling, and this has been pretty consistent over the years, Pew Research found in 2018, 58% um, of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. 37% think abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. I've read recently upwards of maybe possibly 70% of Americans think that Roe v. Wade should stand. Now, that opinion varies from year to year. It can, it can swing pretty, pretty wildly over a few years span. Um, but Americans are divided. But as of right now, 
this seems to be how public opinion breaks on the issue of abortion. You may, you may be encouraged by seeing that poll. You may be discouraged by seeing that poll. And one of my commitments here in this, in this sermon as I thought about this series is, you know, if you ask, if you ask Ryan Gear for a political opinion, you will usually get one. Like, I, I have no shortage of, of political opinions. And at the same time, I thought, you know, when we deal with this issue, I'm going to deal with this as gently as possible. I'm not going to come down hard on this particular issue because I, th I know for a fact, actually, there are people in this congregation who hold both of these views. Some of you are pro-life, some of you are pro-choice, and uh, there's a whole spectrum. And, and, and no matter what you believe about abortion or any of these issues, I want you to please hear me when I say this, welcome home. You're part of the congregation here, um, and so welcome home. For me, as I look at this issue, um, it's an incredibly difficult issue for me. Uh, I'm the kind of person who, I tend to lean on the side of, of personal responsibility, and, and um, I come from my background, and I'm a white male Christian pastor. And at the same time, when I look at abortion, my views have changed over the years. When I was a teenager, like I've said before in this series, I was raised on Pat Robertson and Christian TV. And, and I just believe what Pat said. And, and Pat told his viewers every day that how they should vote. And abortion was the primary determiner of how they should vote in Pat's mind. And so I just had assumptions that I carried for years and years. And then as I've gotten older and I have learned more about the country we live in, and the experience of different socioeconomic groups and different ethnicities in this country, you know, it's, I, I feel, given me a larger picture of abortion than I used to have. And so this past week, I made a Facebook post. And, uh, and I, I just wrote a few paragraphs summarizing what I just said to you. And I pointed out this, uh, this research... Uh, that 75% uh, of women who seek an abortion do so for economic reasons. 50% of the women who seek an abortion, that's my post that I put on there, 50% of the women who seek an abortion live below the federal poverty level. And uh, I put some other stats in there. But we know now that this is, this is how... The experience of women in the United States tends to uh, break down regarding abortion. That 75% of women who obtain an abortion are low income. So the 50% are below the federal poverty level. The other 25% are between one and two times the federal poverty level. We're going to talk about that more in a second. Unplanned pregnancy as a primary reason is stated in about 24%. And then abortions out of medical necessity or in cases of rape or incest are a small number, although there may, that number may be a little bit larger depending on the experience of women and, and what they wanted to share. But when we look at abortion for economic reasons, do you know what the federal poverty level is this year? I didn't. I had to look it up. The federal poverty level for a family of four 
in the United States this year is $26,200. Just to give you a better idea, for one person, the federal poverty level is that person making $12,760 a year. And so you hear those numbers and you might ask yourself, how does a person survive on $12,760 per year? How does a family of four survive on $26,200 per year? I don't think they can. And you may not know anybody in that socioeconomic group. Most of the, of the women who have an abortion in this country belong to. I wouldn't know many people in that group. We're middle class, just like I don't know anybody who owns a yacht. You know, we don't, we don't tend to know anybody outside of our socioeconomic class. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. But I, I worked as a development director in a community center in a food bank for a while. And that showed me a different experience of America than I had seen before, a different experience of Chandler than I had seen before. And so what does life look like for a woman who lives at the federal poverty level or even twice the federal poverty level? But certainly below it, what does life look like for her? She's just trying to survive. She's just trying to make it. And 60% of the women who seek an abortion already have children. So she's trying to feed the children she already has, and she's not really succeeding at it. It's what government programs there are, which are not a lot compared to many other countries. There are people who think that we just give handouts willy-nilly here in America. We don't, not compared to the other developed countries of the world. And she may be dependent on some guys who are in and out of her life which is the reason that she's in the position she's in. She's on the verge of homelessness. She's worried about crime. She's worried about the safety of the children she already has. Will they be killed? Will they be taken advantage of? If you, if you are middle class in America, you may not know any women for whom life is like this. But the older I get and the more I learn about our country, and we've already talked about wealth inequality in this country and, 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 and health care in this country, it just seems like life is getting harder for the middle class, but even harder for people who are in this group. And incidentally, women of color are over twice as likely to seek an abortion as white women for these economic reasons, because wealth inequality disproportionately affects women of color more than it does Caucasian women. So something to take note of is that women of color are over twice as likely to get an abortion. People of color are over twice as likely to be incarcerated in the United States. And so the more I learn about our country, I feel like it just gives me a bigger view of this issue. And I, I remember when I was at this little Christian college where my wife and I met 150 years ago, uh, and I was in a class on ministry and social justice. I was taught by a professor who was kind of the black sheep of the religion department. Uh, he, he said the things no other religion professor would say. He, he was into, into ministry in the inner city and, 
and impoverished areas, and he just had a different view of America than, than uh, a lot of these other religion professors. I remember in class, somebody asked about abortion. And I, again, I was raised on Pat Robertson, found myself at a Christian college, and uh, I'll never forget his answer. He said, and man, oh, you, you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> Talk about tension in the air. He said, what if the pro-life community spent the energy it expends trying to make abortion illegal and address the reasons that women have an abortion? And there was, there was tension in the air that you could cut with a knife. It was almost all guys in that class. Picture religion majors like myself, raised up on Christian TV. And there were like lips quivering in anger. And there was this argument that broke out. But I never forgot that. Because it influenced, it planted a seed in the way that I as a pastor view people not just like me in this country, but people who have a different experience of this country than I do. And then later I found out where he got that. He was a, he was a Tony Campolo fan. And if you don't know who Tony Campolo is, he was the professor of sociology at Eastern University in Pennsylvania and an evangelical Christian. Tony called himself an evangelical Christian all of his life. But as a sociology professor, he was more up on social issues than, than the average evangelical Christian. And he founded an organization called Red Letter Christians with a guy named Shane Claiborne. Maybe you've heard of them. But he gave an interview to Religion News Service on December 17th, 2013. And I'm going to quote part of that interview here. At that time, the, the number was 72% of women who said that they got an abortion for economic reasons. And so Tony Campolo says 72% in 2012, of all abortions in America are driven by economic forces. That is to say, it is young women who are pregnant, working at a minimum wage, with no health insurance, insurance or possibly um, no daycare. And even, let me just say this before I finish the quote, even if a woman has Medicaid and it covers her birth, there is a gap in Medicaid coverage to where the baby may not be covered long after it's born. That's, that's the case right now in many states in the country, so keep that in mind. That is to say, it is young women who are pregnant, working at a minimum wage, with no health insurance, or possibly for, uh, for daycare, with no prenatal or postnatal help, and who knows that if she has the baby, uh, it's going to cost her thousands of dollars for hospital care. So we have to begin to ask, what's this woman going to do? 72% of the people who have had abortions were driven by economic forces, and when asked by the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice organization, would you have had an abortion if it wasn't for these economic choices, would say, no, we wouldn't have had the abortion. Tony says, my question is, how can we as evangelicals call ourselves pro-life if all we are anxious to do is make abortion illegal? If we are not dealing with the socioeconomic forces that are driving people to have abortions? He was an influence on my college professor. And Tony goes on, this isn't on the screen, but he goes on to say something that I think it's important to say. He said, the people in Congress who vote for curtailment of abortion on the one hand, turn around and vote against raising the minimum wage, vote against universal health care, vote against daycare for single women, vote against prenatal and postnatal care. There is an inconsistency here. 
If we're going to make abortion illegal, on the one hand, we have to deal with the forces that are driving women to have abortions, or else we will drive them underground as they were prior to Roe v. Wade. And so, Tony Campolo points out what he would see as the hypocrisy in our political system that wins elections by saying, we're going to make abortion illegal, and then once in power, pass laws that make it tougher for women who are most likely to seek an abortion. And as I learn more about the economic experience of people in our country and that parental leave uh, is not available by federal law like it is in every other industrialized country and childcare costs more than college in, in some states, I, I, I learn these things and I think of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, he was talking to very religious people and uh, who, were, who were apt to give uh, simple answers to complex issues and look down on other people. And for them, it was just an easy, simple answer, a theological answer. And, and Jesus said to them, you lay heavy burdens on the shoulders of people, and yet you don't lift a finger to help them. Jesus said that to religious people with easy answers. You lay heavy burdens on the shoulders of people, and yet you don't lift a finger to help them. That's a verse I think of when it comes to the abortion issue in America. And so, of course, the other issue is unplanned pregnancy, and, and people from my religious tradition tend to support abstinence-only education. And that breaks down for reasons that I gave out of my own life. Is because when you're taught in abstinence only, you believe that having contraceptive means you have the intention to do something you shouldn't do. And so those good Christian kids don't have contraceptives and they end up having an unplanned pregnancy. And so Switzerland, for example, has an abortion rate that's a little over 7 per 1,000 women. And how do they do that? It's a combination of sex education that involves teaching about contraceptives and uh, socioeconomic safety nets for new moms. I don't know about you, but to me that just sounds common sense. And so as a dad, as a, as a white Christian male pastor, I would love to greatly reduce the number of abortions in this country. I wish that were the case. I also see the abortion issue as a much larger picture in America. So I want to do what I can to address the reasons that women have an abortion. And there are issues that we need to take care of economically and with health care that are, that are far wider than, than abortion. But they would also address the reason that the majority of women state for having an abortion. And then I believe as a pastor that abstinence is the best way to prevent a pregnancy. It is the best way to stay away from an STD. It, it, it's the best way to avoid uh, having uh, sex too soon. And most people agree that's possible. We're going to have disagreements, I'm sure, about when that should be. And, you know, uh, I have views that you might expect on that that I fell short of myself. But I also believe in teaching young people about contraception. And so I have two boys, as you know, who are nine and four, and the older one is getting to be about that age. 
And uh, Hannah uh, keeps saying to me, don't you think it's about time to have the talk with them? Maybe I'm too late. Maybe if you, some of you say I already should have. But my wife, just to give you insight in our relationship, she bought a tent, like a little camping tent. And she's like, you should take him camping and have the talk there. Like, this is elaborate. This is a plan. You're really thinking this. And I think she's trying to avoid it. That's what I think. Like, you take him to Mingus Mountain or something, and you have the talk. And so she'll bring it up every once in a while. She'll be like, you going camping yet? Are you planning that camping trip? She's the one with the master's in early childhood education, you know, but I'm I'm the one who's going to take him camping. And I I don't know if nine is, you know, it's, I don't know if it's time for all the details, but at some point when my boys uh, get older and I push it off as long as possible, I'm going to talk about them, uh, talk to them about what a condom is. Like when I was in, in school and, and the home ec teacher pulled out a banana and she, she put a condom on the banana, I'm going to reach for some phallic object and put, you know, put that on there and awkwardly explain how all this works and and I don't have a daughter, but if I did, I would have a conversation with her about contraception. And you may disagree with me on that. Of course, there are religious people who disagree about contraception, but I'm just talking about my own view. And then as I raise my boys, I also am already teaching them that God cares about everybody in this world, including women who feel like they don't have any other option. And, and we can do better for them, too. And so even as we talk about sex and contraception, we can talk about doing right by everybody. Biblical words like justice and righteousness and fairness. And that God cares about the poor. So I've tried to fairly summarize the two views, pro-life and pro-choice. And you can have your own views. And there are people here who already have different views. And I say to all of us, welcome home. And we have a congregation where you can have different views on issues like this and we can still fellowship with each other. And we can have uh, conversations with each other that are respectful and fair and then involve listening as well as talking. And we have the opportunity to model, I think even for our country, what that looks like when you're committed to your faith to love your neighbor as yourself and, and you want to have conversations that can move us all forward. I think that's true in all of these issues and I hope that's been one of the major takeaways of this series is that we can as calmly and rationally as possible, as lovingly as possible, we can talk about difficult issues. And if we can do that here in a faith community, maybe we can do that everywhere in our country. Maybe we can have a better future together for everybody and not just a country where it seems like we're so polarized and our democracy is eroding right before our very eyes. And so for people who want to follow Jesus, our faith requires us to move beyond partisan games. And seek to create a world uh, that is fair for everybody.